We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 today, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. You know, if you've been here for a while, you hear me tell you every week, please bring your Bibles. I really love when you have your Bibles, you're marking them up, let the Bible mark you up as well. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's fine too. Some of you got um, iPads and tablets and phones, and to me, I think that's awesome. If you didn't bring anything where you can read the Bible and make sure that you're checking and balancing what I'm telling you, which is one of the reasons I want you to bring your Bible, then there should be one right in front of you in in that pew. So if you could grab that, open up to Nehemiah chapter 2, you open up to the middle of the Bible and turn left, you're going to find it. I don't think there is a week that goes by that I'm not hearing or having somebody share with me that their life has fallen into rubble. Now you might say, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to hear about these things, and I would agree with you. But when we live like Nehemiah, you will find that people will come to you, and they will share their struggles with you, and they will give you an opportunity to do what Nehemiah's name meant. The Lord has comforted. You will have the opportunity to bring the comfort of God to struggling people. And this series is all about how do we become Nehemiahs to, first of all, one another. Because Nehemiah went to the people of God. He didn't go to the pagan surrounding nations. He went to Jerusalem to rebuild their walls and to restore their lives. First of all, how do you go to believers? How do you go to people in this church? who are struggling, and bring the comfort of our God. Maybe it's a marriage that is on the brink of collapse. Maybe someone has shared with you that they are involved in an addiction, that they cannot break free. Listen, it's all through this church. We're all struggling. There's nobody here that doesn't struggle. If we could just begin at the baseline of admitting, we all struggle. I do. We all struggle. We just don't like people knowing about it. It's frightening. It's a little bit scary, and I get that. But you've got to find somebody. You've got to find a few people, what the board calls glass house living. You've got to find a few people where you can draw back the blinds or raise the blinds, draw back the curtains, and be transparent with. And what I'm learning is there's a lot of us in Cornerstone that won't do that. And there's a reason why your life's in ruin. Maybe it's financial mismanagement. Maybe it's a debt that you're drowning under. Maybe it's an uncontrollable raging temper. Maybe it's open rebellion with your parents. Maybe your children have walked away from the Lord. I don't know what it is. I do in a lot of cases, but you know what it is in your own life. And maybe, maybe this series is helping you get the courage to draw those curtains aside. I want to begin not in Nehemiah this morning, so I want you to be patient with me. If you could keep your thumb in Nehemiah, you can either look behind me. I've got the verses up here from Isaiah 61. It's an incredible passage. But I want to use this Isaiah passage to spring into Nehemiah this morning. And here's what Isaiah chapter 61 says, and I'm going to give you two parts of it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now look at me for just a second, if you would. This is a prophecy 
foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah is writing about the Son of God who is to come, and this is Jesus in mind. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That word means the gospel. Gospel means good news. Bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And let me, let me parse this in two sections. You ready? This is about Jesus, who's going to set people free from captivity to sin. People whose lives, like us, this is us, people whose lives have been overrun by sin and have fallen into ruin. He's going to pull us out of prison. He's going to ransom us from the captor of sin, and he's going to walk us into freedom, not to do what you want, but to serve God. This is the mission of Jesus. Now listen, the same passage changes the pronoun. Now it's they. It's us who have been set free. Look what it says. They, us, we shall build up the ancient ruins. We shall raise up the former devastations. We shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? Isaiah is saying this. Jesus has to free you first, and once he frees you, he gives you a mission to rebuild lives. Now, a lot of us are familiar with this passage, but have you ever seen that mission? Because it's all the way through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. If you are a child of God and you're sitting here listening to me right now, then I'm telling you from the boldness of Scripture, you have a mission like I do. And that mission is that those who were in sin and have been brought out of it by the blood of Christ now go back to repair and restore ruined people. That's your mission. It's not just my mission. I know I'm called to pastor. You're called to be a priest. And a priestess in the kingdom of God. Meaning you're a bridge builder between God and hurting people. That's what a priest does. Jesus freed us for a reason. And it's time we get on mission. Nehemiah's name, I told you, means the Lord has comforted. Nehemiah heard about the troubles in Jerusalem, how their city was in ruin and their wall was in rubble. His heart broke for his people. Listen, he never met these people. He's never been to Jerusalem. We have a family years ago that left our church. It's never easy for a pastor when somebody leaves the church. It is kind of entertaining to hear the reasons. This family left because they lived 20 minutes away and didn't have the same mission that we had to repair broken lives in the eastern end of the Lehigh Valley. Nehemiah was 800 miles from Jerusalem, yet his heart broke for Jerusalem. And he said, God, what do you want me to do about it? He prayed for four months and a plan began to to emerge 
And finally, God opened the door. He made the opportunity for Nehemiah to go and to impact, to serve, to rebuild, to restore. The day came. Nehemiah begins the journey back to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, we've got to do something that's very difficult for all of us. When you read in a historical book like Nehemiah, it's easy to say, wow, that happened 445 B.C. It's happening today. And we are the Nehemiahs. So now you've got to get into the story and you've got to say, I'm Nehemiah. God, I've got to learn how to rebuild. I've got to learn how to restore. It's my mission like it was Nehemiah's. Teach me how to do it. And the first thing we're going to see is this, what I've already said. We're all sent on mission. No, I didn't grammatically forget the A. We're all sent not on a mission, as if there's lots of different missions. We're all sent on mission. There's only one. Let me explain. We'll look at verse 9 first. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. The river is Euphrates. Anything beyond the river is what the province means. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and Horsemen. So let me let me explain the difference between vision and mission. And let's see if we at Cornerstone can get used to these words and learn how to live them. A, a vision is this, and there's lots of ways to describe it. Here's the best one that I've ever learned. A vision is the picture that forms when you begin to understand what God wants to do through your life. Now listen, there's six plus billion people on this planet. And you're in your family, married to the one that you're married, having the children or the parents that you have. Why? Why did God select you to be in this particular family? Have you ever really prayed, God, what's your vision? What's your purpose for my family? I've never done statistical analysis on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm accurate that less than 1% of the people in this church really know the purpose in their life, much less the vision that God has for their family. Why did he bring you together? He's got a reason for that. And Nehemiah began to pray and he began to pray and all of a sudden the picture began to form of what God wanted him to do. That's vision. Mission is different. Mission is what you've got to do if the vision's ever going to become a reality. Mission is a verb, vision's a noun. It's action. It requires movement. There's no substitute for doing. You can't talk your way into mission. Mission has to move. It has to be alive. It's got to be dynamic. And if it's done right in the will of God, co-laboring with Jesus Christ, the vision will become a reality. Let me... Put this scenario to drive this home. Imagine the triune God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Having created humanity and watched all of us fall into sin. And their heart broke for us. And they said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to have a plan that can rescue humanity that is captive to sin. We've got to rescue and we've got to redeem. Here's what we should do. We should send the son to live among them, obedient to the entire law and to be a perfect sacrifice whose blood will cover anyone who puts their faith in him. 
They create the plan. Their heart was breaking. And week after week, century after century, millennium after millennium, the triune God says, wow, we really should activate this plan. Our hearts are really breaking. We've got to do something. Next millennium, maybe we should. That's what it's like, friends. If you let me be audacious and bold with you for a moment, that's what it's like when you see somebody's broken life and your heart grieves for them and you think, I ought to do something. I hope, God, you'll do something about it. And you never live on mission for them. Vision won't become a reality. People's lives will not be restored unless we step on mission. And for Nehemiah, the mission began, look at the words, then I came, that's the movement. Or in the NIV, the KJV, then I went, that's movement to mission. He's now moving, he put his convictions into action, he's beginning to do something, but not whatever he wanted to do, look what it says. Now the king had sent me, he wasn't going on his own authority, he wasn't going on, gee, I think I'll go to Jerusalem and see if I can rebuild the wall. The king had sent him. Now, here, here we go. Let's interact. You can't just come to church and park your minds in neutral. You'll never get anything out of a sermon. So try not to do that. Try to get your, your minds in gear. How does this relate with us? The king sent him. The king is sending us. It's just not Artaxerxes. It's not the king of Persia. It's the king of kings. It's the king of glory. And he has sent us on mission to rebuild sin-ruined people. The sovereign king of the universe has sent us and is sending us to the brokenhearted who have no hope. And there are no draft dodgers in the kingdom of God. Nobody has an exemption. We're all on God's mission. God's mission is to repair, to restore, to bring streets of peace back into lives that are nothing but chaos. That's our mission to do it with the power of the gospel. To not be engaged is to be a wall absent without leave. The Bible, by the way, I, I was so kind just now because the Bible calls it disobedience. You're either on mission or you're not. There is no, I'm almost on mission, or I'll be on mission tomorrow. I just need to grow a little bit more, or I've got to get a little more time. It's either you're living on mission or you're not. You're either obedient to the mission or you're not. I mean, I'm putting it pretty starkly. I hope you can withstand that. You've got to see the urgency of people's lives. They need the gospel. And even more, Nehemiah says, look at what it says. He was sent with the king's letters, okay? Not just parchment with Artaxerxes' name written on the bottom and a stamp of wax of his seal. We're sent with the king's letter because the letters that Nehemiah was given, here's what they do, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but when a king gave letters to his servants, what it meant was he's transferring a portion of his own authority to his servant. 
We've been sent by the king of glory, the sovereign king of the universe, with his letters, meaning he's given us all authority that God gave to Jesus. The father gave to Jesus all authority. Jesus has given us authority. And that authority is backed by his letter. And here's his letter. It's the word of God. Listen, if you're going to step into somebody's life and begin to rebuild, I'm going to, this is a warning. Try to hear it. You're going to step into somebody's life with the latest self-help book. At best, you're going to help them manage their problems. It will be short and it will likely come back worse than ever. There is no transformative power anywhere but here. And if we're going to be Nehemiahs that bring the comfort of Yahweh to people who are losing hope, you've got to bring the gospel. You've got to bring the king's letters. And here's exactly what Paul's saying in Romans 10. But how are they to call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You've got to preach. And how are they to preach unless, here it is, mission language, they are sent. And here's the letters as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, the gospel. Don't bring your worldly wisdom. Don't bring what seems to be the best advice from the latest Oprah Winfrey circles. It has no transformative power. If you're going to rebuild lot walls in somebody's life, it's got to be the way that God says. He's put us on mission and he says, here's my letters. You've got my authority and you've got my gospel. Now step into lives and repair. He's only got one mission. Do you know that? God only has one mission. I mean, you can you go to 15 different churches, you're going to get 15 different mission statements. But they all got to be around the same mission of God. He came to redeem and to ransom and to save. And he, began, he came to give us a mission to restore. We're the ones that now work to repair and restore. He saved. He pulled them out of sin. Now he says, be the people of God. Step on mission and restore lives of the hurting. That's our job. You know, a friend of mine lives in Houston, Texas. He just entered. He's going to a church. It's, it's a church is doing phenomenal things. And the church has a gay community near them. And the gay community seemingly is impervious to the gospel. They won't, unless you're, if you're coming from outside, they're not going to listen to you. So my friend now has joined another group of men who now have moved into that community and renting a house. Because they want to bring the gospel. They want to bring the good news to people's who, people whose lives are ruined and getting more ruinous but they want to do it not through bible thumping not through here you've got to do this and i'll never talk to you again they want to do it through the context the relationship they're serious they want to live they want to make friends they want to love the gay community and they want to bring the good news of the gospel that's extraordinary that's nehemiah that's mission but when you join God on mission, here's point number two. And man, I tell you, I hope we're listening. There will be opposition. 
There will be always, continuously, opposition. From verse 10 to the end of the book, just a few verses right before the end of the book, there is nothing but opposition for Nehemiah's mission. He was the highest ranking, Nehemiah was the highest ranking Jew in the world. Listen, did you know that? You've got King Artaxerxes, you've got his princes, and then you've got the cupbearer, Nehemiah. That's the power that Nehemiah had. He had the ear, he had the heart of the king of Persia, the most powerful man on the planet. He's wealthy, Nehemiah is, he's comfortable. And yet when he hears that his people's Lives were in ruin, that they were in great trouble and shame. His heart breaks. He was willing to give it all up. He was willing to move to Jerusalem to do what he could to intervene. And he starts the journey. And listen, before he even arrives in Jerusalem, verse 13, he already runs into opposition. He's not even in Jerusalem yet. Before those enemies of God begin to oppose. Friends, all those who labor in the kingdom of God, everybody who steps into the lives of ruined people, you're going to experience opposition. Jesus warned us about this. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. We got that part. We don't like what comes next. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs, helpless creatures in the midst of wolves, carnivorous beasts. He's warned us, we're going to face danger. We're going to face the loss of our reputation. We're going to lose friends. We're going to have family members. They can't believe that you want to go on a mission trip. And you've got to raise your own money to do it. Are you crazy? Opposition's coming. And it began the moment the enemies of God heard that someone came to help God's people. Verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite, look at your text, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And sometimes that opposition, it will come from our family. Sometimes it will come from your co-workers. It will come from your neighbors. It will come from your friends. Listen, Denise and I have experienced this. When we moved by faith to Georgia, our own church, some people in our own church said, that's not how God works. You've got to find a place to live first and a job and then move and trust God. We were doing it the other way around because the flesh will oppose faith. Look with me a little closer at these two enemies. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite. That's just meaningless to most of us, but there's a lot of stuff in here. Sanballat was the governor. If you've got Jerusalem in your mind, just picture it on the map. The, the region just north of Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, that's, that's the governor of that area was Sanballat. If you take your map of Jerusalem and you go east, the area right across the Jordan River is Ammon. This is Tobiah. He's the governor of Ammonite. He was the servant, which is a derogatory term, meaning that he was likely the pawn of Sanballat. So here we've got Sanballat, who is really the power monger and then you've got Tobiah his assistant both of them governors both of them right around Jerusalem both of them keeping the people of God in great trouble and disgrace 
By the way, that's what abusive people do. Unfortunately, some of you know that. You know that, right? The modus operandi of abusive people is they've got to keep the people around them weak. So if I start counseling or if somebody starts counseling the one who's being abused and they begin to rise up in strength, it throws the abuser off his game because now you can't control. You've got to counsel both of them if you've got any hope. Abusers have to keep people weak the way they do it. They demean, they keep you in shame, they threaten, they have anger. Whatever it takes, you've got to keep weak, you've got to be controlled. This is what Sanballat, this is what Tobiah were doing with the people of Israel. They were keeping them in great trouble and shame. And so now we can understand why Nehemiah was such a threat to them because somebody's coming to enter into this mess and to rise them up and build. This was out of their game plan. Now years ago, a team of us began to help a lady who was enmeshed in an abusive relationship with an alcoholic husband. I had a very generic, sterile relationship with the husband until I stepped in to try to help. And all of a sudden, a phone call, one o'clock in the morning, he's drunk, accusing me of having an affair with his wife, accusing me of meddling where my nose doesn't belong, and she was crying out for help. The next morning, I thought, well, hopefully that's done. I hoped that I put him at ease. I prayed with him. It's 1.30 now in the morning. Started getting calls at 8 o'clock in the morning with threats of violence. This is what abusers do. This is what happens. And when you begin to step in, listen, when you begin to step in to somebody's life and you begin to bring ruin to redemption, when you begin to repair and to rebuild, you're going to experience the sand ballots and the Tobias. They're going to come. And if you're not ready for it, they're going to blindside you. And that's why a lot of people quit. You get ready for it. But let's dial in even a little closer. Who were Sanballat and Tobiah? Sanballat was likely from Horonaim. Now listen, some of you are, are thinking, oh my goodness, here he goes, history. Oh, would you grow up? <laughs> this is really important. He's likely from the city of Horonaim. It's a city of Moab. Now listen, that's going to factor. This is important. He's a Moabite. And Tobiah is clearly, the Bible says, a, well, what he doesn't say is he's a Jew, but he's a governor of Ammonite. He's got mixed lineage, as all the Samaritans did, half Jews. He's a, half, he's a Jew, but he's a governor of the Ammonite people. And in the Bible, if a people group ended with an ite, listen, they were enemies of God. You don't believe me? Here's what it says. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, and they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. If your people group ended with an ite, you were an enemy of God. And all through the Old Testament, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. It was the Moabites. Don't you remember Balaam who was hired to curse Israel? to entice the men away from their God by sending the Moabite women into their camp, and it worked for a while. 
It was Moab who tried to hire that prophet Balaam. This is why God says in Deuteronomy 23, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. But let me do one more thing. Now listen, try to hang in here. Let me dial in the zoom button a little bit closer. Ready? Pinch and zoom back down deeper into the Moabites and Ammonites. You know where they came from, right? You remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham? And you remember God rescued Lot and his wife and his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah just as he was beginning to destroy them. And Lot's wife disobeyed God and looked back at the city and was turned into a pillar of salt. Lot kept going with his two daughters, but he was like, wow, I'm not going to go back in civilization. It's crazy there. We're going to live in a cave. So they began to live in a cave. But ladies, listen, if you didn't have children, that was the height of disgrace in the Old Testament. You've got to have children. And so Lot's daughters said, we have no men around us. We live in a cave. It's the three of us, us and dad. What are we going to do? So they got the older, the older daughter got their dad drunk and had a baby with him. Aren't you glad the Bible doesn't gloss over sin to show the great hope we've got in redemption. She has a baby from her dad. The younger daughter the next night gets her dad drunk again and she has a baby with her father. The older daughter's son was Moab. The younger daughter's son became the father of the Ammonites, became the father of Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites, the Sambalites and the Tobias are illegitimate cousins of Israel. They represent something that is all through the New Testament, something metaphorically that our own flesh, that's what they represent, our own flesh opposes God. Listen, we've got three enemies, friends. If you're a Christian, you've got three enemies. You've got this world energized by your second energy or enemy satan and you've got your flesh the unredeemed part of us not your skin it's the part of our souls and part of our minds that still want our own way and have not yet submitted to god and god is redeeming that god is building in us the mind of christ but the flesh opposes the spirit of god galatians 5 Three enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh. And you've got these two, Sanballat and Tobiah, that represent that mortal energy, enemy energized by Satan that opposes the work of God in us. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Galatians 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to one another. Every person that you begin entering and rebuilding, there will be a portion of their unredeemed flesh that rises up to oppose. Yet if God is for us, friends, Who could be against us? You know, I've got two reasons I'm preaching this sermon, two goals. One is that you'll all get on mission with me and realize it's not an option. And secondly, that you would gain confidence. You're being sent with the king's letters. 
And you're being sent with his horsemen, his angels. You're being sent with his protection. You're being sent with the confidence that the word of God can change lives. But do you really believe that? Let me bring you one more point and it will be brief. Not only are we all sent on mission, and not only will our enemies oppose us, you've got to get ready for it. But thirdly and finally, rebuilding can start with one faithful servant. Will that be you? Look at verse 10. Look at what got Tobiah and Sanballat so greatly displeased that someone, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Did you get that singular word? They weren't bothered by the soldiers. They weren't bothered by the letters. They were bothered that one person was on his way because nothing puts fear into the enemies of God than someone who says, I will stand in the gap and I will rebuild and I will go in the power of my God. You know, there's something really interesting in Nehemiah that I don't want us to miss, and I haven't really introduced it. What we need to keep in mind is that the person of Nehemiah, listen, please, if you haven't heard anything, at least get this. This will at least be something good for you to grab. The person of Nehemiah points forward to the greatest wall builder in human history, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember Isaiah 61, we talked about that earlier. There's no one, there's no one who has brought greater fear to the enemies of God than Jesus Christ himself. Listen, there's not one time in biblical history where there was more demonic activity when the, when the Son of God walked the planet. His presence agitates the enemies of God. He is the someone who was sent by the Father to redeem broken, sin-captive people like us. And He's given that mission to us as He co-labors among us. And God will do incredible things in His kingdom when even one single person rises up to build. We've got the confidence of Paul. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor's not in vain. He's going to bless your efforts. Can you remember this? Nehemiah did in 52 days what 90 previous years of leadership couldn't. 52 days. God is simply waiting for even one person to say, I will go and live on mission. And watch what happens when you begin the journey. You will have opposition, but your God, our God is for us. Who can possibly be against us? For we carry the very literal power of God in the gospel to rebuild broken lives. Step out on mission, friends. If one person could do this, what can all of us do together? Take the word of God that gives hope to hurting people. Add your voice to the rest of us and say, let us rise up and build. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for your text. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Father, I pray. 
that we would see this morning, every one of us, if we are a child of God, we are sent on mission. It's not an option. But we're not sent alone. You've given us protection. You've given us your authority. You've given us your word. And when that opposition comes, and it's going to come, sometimes even before we even start the work, we have a promise that you are for us. Who could be against us? Even one person can do incredible things for your kingdom. What could we do if we all rise up and build? Lord, help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.